Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture, as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. So there is this good old Sunday school teacher and he really loves the kids. He loves teaching the little ones about Jesus. And one day the kids come into class and say, hey, Mr. Smith, it's Easter Sunday. He says, yeah, happy Easter, little Johnny and little Jane, little Nene, and all my kids. And he says, you know, class, I want to ask you, what is small and furry, has a long little tail and beady little eyes and little buck teeth and likes to eat nuts and run around in the grass and the trees. And little Johnny says, ooh, ooh, I know. So the teacher says, okay, little Johnny, what, what is it? Well, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but this is Sunday school, so it's gotta be Jesus. I thought that this really kind of informs us of often how we think about church. We come to a context like this, a setting like this, you know, we, we get in our Sunday best and maybe we put on our big hats and we go, the answer is Jesus. And oftentimes we really miss the real point. And so I'm here to inform you today that Jesus is not a squirrel. Okay, he doesn't have beady little eyes and a bushy little tail. Even though we're in church, Jesus is not always the answer. And so we've been in this series together talking about seven big questions, big questions of life, things like the meaning and purpose of life, and is the Bible reliable, and um, what's going to happen after we die. You know, we've talked about some of these things, and today we're going to talk about is Jesus really God? One of the questions that we face in life is a question of faith. What are we gonna believe and why? And when we get to Jesus, we have to ask some very serious questions. But have you ever really wondered who Jesus was? Or have we just kind of grown up thinking, well, he maybe is a little squirrel, but it's just always Jesus. We've never even really questioned. I wanna invite you, if you've never really questioned, to do so. God's not afraid of our questions. Ask yourself, who was Jesus really? Not just who does the culture say he is, or who does this holiday say he is, or who did my family say that he was, but who do I really think Jesus is? And why did this obscure man from the Middle East end up really revolutionizing the whole world? I remember when I first started getting serious about this kind of question in my own life. I started really asking, who was Jesus? I started really reading the Bible for the first time with seriousness. And once I got past all of that cultural Sunday school squirrel rhetoric about Jesus that told me 
that all I had to do was believe in Jesus and he died for my sins and I don't have to go to hell and I get to live forever. Once I got past all of that, I had to ask myself, who was Jesus really? And for all of us, you know, there was a time where we didn't really fully understand who Jesus was. And if we're honest, we're not even really fully sure now. And that's the beauty and the complexity and at times the difficulty of faith, of Christian faith. It's having hope and confidence in things that are not seen, things that we cannot empirically prove. And yet billions of people over the course of thousands of years have reached this conclusion that there's something special about Jesus, that he elevates amongst the world stage of humanity and that this was no ordinary man. So how have people come to this type of conclusion about who Jesus is? Well, let's take a look at a little interview of some folks talking about this question, is Jesus really God? I'd like to think Jesus is a great person. Uh, I just, I, it's, a, it's to me, it's a silly story. Jesus was the shepherd who basically was the leader of the pack and told people what to do. He would probably be the guy that I walked by and thought he was a homeless bum and then ignored him, honestly. I'm sure that he would be saying something really profound and I'm afraid I might be ignoring it. I don't necessarily believe that any one person is God. I don't think that Jesus may have been God. However, I do believe that we all have divinity within us. I'm just trying to do the best I can down here. I, I, I believe it, that uh, the teachings of Jesus, uh, they ring true to me. It's the way that it makes sense to live that way, to, to love people instead of hate people, to, to look out for your fellow man instead of always trying to beat him down. Uh, if he really existed, uh, all for it. Um, too bad that there is no other people like, like him nowadays. Jesus, I believe, was a liberal. And I think looking at where we're going, I think he'd be happy to see that people are becoming more and more accepting. Sure, I believe that Jesus was a historical person, um, but I don't believe the, the other things that have accrued around the story of his life. He's, he's like the pinnacle of love. It's idolization, basically. The idea that there's a human being that can be viewed as a god is, 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 is a tough, um, tough proposition for me to accept. Jesus, he loves people and he wants people in his family and he's not someone that pushes people outside. He's always inviting people in. Si Jesus hay Dios, para para I think I'm, I grow more curious about that every day um, uh, and, and how I can be a better person, uh, maybe by following his teachings. And, and maybe it will be a, a fit for me and maybe it won't, but you know, I'll, I have a lifetime to figure that out. So obviously there are a wide variety of 
responses and thoughts about this kind of a question, is Jesus really God? And obviously, even in this room, all of us church-going folks, we probably have a wide variety of responses as well. And so what I want to do is kind of unpack this question a little bit for us today, dive into a little bit of what the Bible says about this kind of a question, is Jesus really God? So the Bible says that Jesus was God in the flesh, who came to restore our broken relationship with a perfect creator God. But how can we know if that's really true? So I want to take a look at four things today that I think can help us, four areas that I think can give us confidence that Jesus really is who he says he is, the Son of God. These four areas are prophecy, teaching, history, and the resurrection. Look over in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, we're going to begin with the topic of prophecy. And per usual, on a Sunday, this is going to be a high flyover, so we're just going to kind of skim a few ideas that I think can help put us on a path to even greater understanding and depth of belief and confidence in our belief. In Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. A thousand years before Jesus ever lived, People were writing about this coming king, this coming anointed one, what he was going to be like. A thousand years. That's a hard time frame for us to even really wrap our minds around. Could you imagine what life was like a thousand years ago? Just try to pause for a second. A thousand years ago, what would daily life have been like? It's hard for us to even grasp real tangible ideas of that kind of time frame, especially in the last couple hundred years, right? No penicillin, God forbid, no Facebook or Instagram, no automobiles, no trains, no planes. You probably never ventured out past about a 50 mile radius your entire existence. Life was so different that long ago. And a thousand years before Jesus even lived, the prophet is describing the life and the reign that Jesus would have. Look over in Isaiah chapter 53. We're talking about prophecy here. Something that can help us to have confidence in who Jesus said he was. So Isaiah 53, we fast forward to just a few hundred years before Jesus lives. In chapter 53, I'm going to read verse 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace 
was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hundreds of years before Jesus' life, Isaiah predicts the suffering of this Messiah and the reconciliation that it would enable hundreds of years before this ever happened. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming King, the coming Messiah. And here are just a handful, just a handful of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament. He was born in Bethlehem. He was preceded by a messenger who was John the Baptist. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey, which was very unusual, was betrayed by a friend who received precisely 30 pieces of silver. He was silent before his accusers and died in a manner that Romans used for criminals, which was crucifixion, during which they pierced his hands and his feet. Just a handful of things that prophets hundreds of years before Jesus ever lived said would happen of this Messiah King. And Peter Stoner, in this classic work in the 50s called Science Speaks, he calculated that the chance of any man living on the earth accidentally fulfilling just these seven or eight prophecies that I just mentioned, not the 300 plus in the Old Testament, but just seven or eight, that the chances of a person just accidentally doing that, even up to the present time, would be one in 10 to the 17th power. It's hard to imagine numbers like that. We're talking about astronomical numbers, literally, like to in, in, in embody the universe and how many atoms there are in it. These are the kinds of numbers we're talking about, right? To give us a, a picture. He calculated that if you took this number, 1 to 10 of the 17th power, if you took this number of silver dollars, which are what, about yay big, they would cover the state of Texas to the depth of about two feet. How many silver dollars would it take to just cover one layer of this basketball gym floor? Would anyone like to try that? How long would it take us to lay those down? The size of Texas, two feet deep. That's just crazy. And he says, if you would have marked one of those silver dollars in the state of Texas, two feet deep, and then sent a person out blindfolded at random to pick one silver dollar, the chances of him picking up the one that was marked is what that number would be for one person randomly by accident to fulfill these prophecies. Because some people object, well, no, Jesus wasn't trying to fulfill these prophecies. He wasn't divinely inspired or being led by God or anything. He just kind of happened coincidentally to just do some of these things. That, that doesn't even make sense. It'd be like blindfolding you and sending you to Texas somewhere and saying, roam the state and pick the right one. It just wouldn't happen. So the only conclusion that we can make then, based on the number of prophecies that were made about Jesus and how one life was able to fulfill them, is that it was not coincidental. It was actually divinely orchestrated. It's the only logical conclusion we can come to. Let's talk about teaching for a moment. Matthew chapter 26. Is Jesus really God? Or is he just the Sunday school squirrel? 
Is Jesus really God? Matthew chapter 26. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say on the matter. In verse 64. I'll start in 63. But Jesus remained silent. Sound like anything? The high priest says to him, this is when he's on trial, right? The high priest says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So here we are. Jesus has been kind of evasive and a bit elusive about some things. And he's on trial. People are trying to kill Jesus. And guess why? It wasn't because he was a really nice guy. Contrary to what many people think, well, Jesus is, you know, the embodiment of love and I can be a better person. And he was just a really swell guy. If we could all just be more like him. That's not why people wanted to kill him. It's because he said some crazy stuff like I am the son of God. And so here he is on trial and this high priest, the guy who was like the chief judge, right? The, the, the highest court of the land, like our Supreme Court judge. He says, I charge you under oath. Basically, like, you have to tell me the truth right now. Are you really the son of God? He just corners Jesus. And what does Jesus say? You have said so. Jesus replied. But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, it's hard for us to understand how that would have hit the high priest's ears. Jesus just accepted this prophetic messianic title as referring to him. And he claims equality with God. With what he just told that guy, that's what that guy would have heard. He would have heard, this dude is claiming to be equal with God. And he's embracing this title, son of man, that's only to be reserved for the Messiah. So Jesus is clearly proclaiming, I am the Messiah. I am who you think that I am. And that was offensive. Because like one of the guys actually on the video said, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that a man says, I'm God. Like, try to push the Sunday school squirrel thing out of your head for a moment. A person, a man says, I'm God. What would you do if somebody randomly came up to you and said that? in downtown Asheville later this afternoon. What especially if that person didn't have a house to live in, he didn't have any money, and he looked kind of homeless. What would you think of that guy? That's exactly what's happening with Jesus. We would lock that person up. That's exactly what they did. Except for they also killed him because he was claiming to be God. Mark chapter two, flip a couple pages. Jesus, and what does he say about this question? Is Jesus really God? Mark chapter 2, in verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
So we're jumping in the middle of a story here, but if you go back and read it, Jesus actually forgives this person of their sins in the midst of all the religious leaders, and they get super offended because forgiveness of sins is reserved only for God. Only God can do such a thing. No person can forgive another person of some sort of eternal weight of sin. And Jesus says, I'm forgiving your sins. And they're like, he's blaspheming, which again was punishable by death. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Because the current thinking of that day was that his sins were what made him paralyzed and that his sins were being punished by this affliction that he had. That would have been what most people would have thought when they saw this paralyzed man. Well, you must have done something wrong, so God is punishing you. So Jesus is saying, which is easier for me to actually say, get up and walk, relieving you of this affliction, which would have inferred your sins are forgiven, you're no longer being punished by them, or to say, your sins are forgiven. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. There he is again, taking that messianic title as his own, Son of Man. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus claims power that only God could have. Jesus says, so that you may know that I am God, that I am the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man, so that you can know that, watch this. Get up and go home. I forgive your sins. Jesus claims to have the power of God. And he confirms it in front of all of them with this miracle that affirms what he's saying. Watch, I do have the power of God. Get up and go walk. And they go, we've never seen anything like this. This isn't some like, be healed in the spirit. Ha -ha! And then you go behind the curtain and it's like, oh, he's like, oh, okay, you know, I was fine all along. That's not what we're talking about. They have been amazed like they've never seen before because something supernatural happened in front of their eyes. So what about history? Does history give us any kind of confidence for believing that Jesus really is God? Peter Kreft, he says, why did thousands of people suffer torture and death for this lie if they knew it was a lie? What force sent Christians to the lion's den with hymns on their lips? What lie ever transformed the world like that? Historically, people have reasoned that there's no logical reason that so many people would have given their life for something that they knew was really a myth or a lie. Ask yourself, would you be willing to die for something you knew was a lie? 
So Aquinas, writing many hundreds of years ago, he says, if the incarnation did not really happen, incarnation meaning God becoming a person, if God did not really exist in a man, if that didn't really happen, then an even more unbelievable miracle happened. The conversion of the world by the biggest lie in history and the moral transformation of lives into unselfishness, detachment from worldly pleasures, and radically new heights of holiness by a mere myth. He says the proof is in the pudding, man. No lie is going to convert moral life. No lie is going to make people achieve radically new heights of holiness because of a myth. I think about Kendall's life, recently reborn in Jesus, striving to live a life of moral holiness, not because of a lie, not because of self-willpower, but because a man raised from the dead. What? No lie could create that. Turn over to John chapter 2. Prophecy, teaching, history, and of course, the resurrection. John chapter 2, in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, which is happening now, by the way, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and other, others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy. Do you think the people who were manning those tables that he flipped over thought, wow, what a swell guy. <laughs> Jesus was pretty zealous when the time needed him to be so. And of course, the reason he's doing this, because he goes on and he says, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Some uh, gospels say into a den of thieves or a den of robbers. His disciples remembered that it is written, they remembered Old Testament prophecies about what the Messiah was going to be like, zeal for your house will consume me. So God had instructed the Levites who maintained the worship at the temple of Jerusalem, which was a, a place of sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So this entire religious system for the Israelites to be forgiven of their sins was set up. And part of that was that people would need to come to Jerusalem to worship God during this Passover feast. And instead of having to bring these animals that they would slaughter so that the animals were taking their, the punishment of their sin instead of them being killed, they would be able to travel without the animals and purchase the animals on site. So it would make your journey a little bit easier. So you just bring some money, say, okay, I'll buy one of your imperfect cattle or sheep or, you know, and then we will slaughter those animals. And what happened? Good old capitalism happened. And so what happened is the people who were making these exchanges would start extorting people, charging them more than what it was really worth. They would start gaining wealth and gaining profit 
off of these sojourners' needs. They were extorting people. And Jesus comes in and flips stuff over and drives the animals out and says, this is not what God desires. God does not desire you to be greedy and mistreat your fellow man. In verse 18, then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you give us to show and prove your authority to do all of this? In other words, who do you think you are, Jesus? They're upset because they're cut, he's cutting in on their profits, right? Sounds like culture that we're aware of. Well, then he goes on and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the disciples remembered, jump down to verse 22. After he had raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Of course, everyone's confused because he's at the temple and he's saying, destroy this temple. So naturally, they're thinking about this building that had taken decades to build. And he says, destroy it and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? And then after he raises from the dead, his disciples remember this. And they're like, that's what he was talking about. The temple where God was dwelling was him. So he predicts his death and his resurrection even right here. Let's take a look at how some other folks currently in our culture have wrestled with this question, is Jesus really God? I kind of worked through the, the theme of having a lot of different ways to God and God sitting on the mountain and it depends on which path up the mountain uh, you take. But uh, as I looked at that, there were so many different contradictions among uh, the path up the mountain and there was different types of gods that they were starting. And then I kind of came to the realization uh, one time uh, when I said, you know, if you're really going to be serious about this, somewhere along the line, no matter what you learn about does God exist in other religions, you've got to come back and ask the question, who is Jesus? Because of all the religious leaders in the world, Jesus is the only one who claimed to be God. What the Bible talks about is that, you know, Jesus revealed what God is like in a way we could comprehend, this unseen, infinite God that we can't even fathom. And, you know, people would say, well, yeah, that's a, that's a great thought, but uh, it's just probably myth. But actually, God put into history signs and markers so that we could know it really was true, that it really was from Him. You know, the Old Testament, is, is not one book, it's actually 39 books written by about 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And, and all throughout, God was foretelling when he would actually send this Messiah, this one who would reveal the unseen God in a, a way we could relate to. And it foretold when that would happen. Um, I mean, to, to, the, to the time and the place. Like it'll happen in Jerusalem and before uh, the, the temple is destroyed. 
Well, that's real history uh, because the temple was destroyed by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD and it still hasn't been rebuilt to this day. So there are lots of reasons like that to, to realize this isn't just myth, you know? And I thought, that's what I thought, I thought it was myth, but I just hadn't taken the time to really look. You know, Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He announced a new order of things, a new way that the world would work. Uh, those are gonna look very different than how the religious leaders of the day had sort of set things up. He was somebody who was going to set people free who had felt captive. And I think many of them had felt captive to religion and felt captive to a list of to-dos and a, a big moral rule book that they felt like they had to live by. Otherwise, they couldn't be in relationship with God. And he was breaking through that. Religion says, I do. Therefore, I love. Jesus says, you love. Therefore, you do. And I think that is the demarcation. That is the line in the sand. Um, so clearly expressed through his character. I think Jesus is a different sort of king and a different sort of savior because he doesn't express his message through power or making an enemy or success. He displayed his power through suffering and a crucifixion and dying and losing on the cross. But then the, the kicker on the story is that uh, he rose again. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, Nobody else, no other religious figure, nobody else in all humanity has ever done that. You look at the fact that, you know, we know Jesus lived 2,000-ish years ago. There was a man named Jesus, lived in Nazareth, was crucified by the Romans. We know that, like, not just, not just from the Bible, but other sources have testified to that. Three days later, he comes back to life. And the authorities are so freaked out by this reality that they pay off the guards and they come up with some ways to obfuscate what's happened. But the reality is there was an empty tomb and all they'd have had to have done is hauled out the broken body of Jesus Christ, but they couldn't produce it. He was resurrected, rose up from the dead, with over 500 witnesses that saw him. And based on that encounter, were willing to die in order to testify to what they had saw. They truly were so convicted that, this, that they saw a dead guy rise, that it, met, you know, it, it made history. So C.S. Lewis says of this question, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So on this Easter Sunday, when we have lots of friends and family with us, the question has to be asked, who do you say Jesus is? This isn't just a holiday where we get to have Easter egg hunts and eat candy. My, little, my two little boys, three and one, they got up this morning, they got little motorcycles and like, yay, happy Easter. And pretty soon they're gonna be in that school, that Sunday school class, and they're gonna be hearing about bushy little tails and beady little eyes and gonna say, the answer's gotta be Jesus. Because they're gonna be raised in this culture too. But at some point, Someday, they're going to have to answer, who do you say that Jesus is? This isn't just a day where we go to church and get all dressed up and have a great lunch after service, which you guys are all eagerly waiting for. This is a day where we remember and we worship and we follow a guy who raised from the dead. We have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus is either God or he's a fraud. There's no logical middle ground. So please don't walk out of here believing that Jesus raised from the dead and then living like he actually is a fraud. That's not the option that he left us. There is no logical middle ground. Doing that is trying to take this illogical middle ground, this illogical fence splitting, and you're only fooling yourself. Jesus is either God or he's a fraud. He can't be both simultaneously. And this Resurrection Sunday is a day where a man verifiably raised from the dead and countless people have lost their lives, even to this day, based on that fact, with the hope of their own forgiveness, their own resurrection, and their own eternal life. And I think if every one of us, me included, decided to set our life's compass to Jesus' life and resurrection, I believe we'd impact not only this community here in Asheville and the Western Carolina mountains, but the entire world. Let's pray together. God, I think talking to you at one point in my life was weird. Speaking out loud to something that's not there, not seen, just seems freaky. And yet, Father, because a man raised from the dead, I speak with great confidence and boldness knowing that you hear me. Even though you shouldn't, you have no reason to listen to me, a broken man who's done so much wrong and continues to do so, 
living in a broken world with so many other people doing so many wrong things. And yet, Father, you love us. You are willing to allow Jesus to live and embody a perfect life, to perfectly represent you, to become our mediator between you and us, that no longer do we have to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple or sacrifice sheep and cattle. But now, Father, we can follow Jesus, our perfect sacrifice once and for all, who paid the punishment that we deserved. God, I pray that none of us walk out of here today taking the path of that illogical middle road. That we would ask the question for ourselves, who is Jesus really? Who do we believe he is? Not who does someone else say that he is, but that we would be willing to invest in searching out the answers to those questions for ourselves. God, help us. Strengthen us to do that. It's so easy to just get distracted from these kinds of things and just be enveloped by the day-to-day -day questions of where am I going to get my food and what am I going to do at work tomorrow? And am I going to get that promotion? And all of these temporary things that seem to just overwhelm our attention. God, I pray that we can elevate ourselves to ask questions, to find answers, to seek and ask and knock for the things that truly matter. And thank you, God, that you've given us an opportunity to live lives that truly matter. That we're not just living lives eating, drinking, and being merry for tomorrow we die, but that we can live an eternal life starting now about your eternal purposes of loving others and seeking and saving the lost and making disciples of Jesus to show them a risen king. We love you, Father, and we thank you for first loving us. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.